0: You're listening to Policy Speaking. I'm your host, Edward Greenspan, President and CEO of the Public Policy Forum. And thank you for tuning in. Canadians suddenly seem to have lost confidence in the pride and joy of our healthcare system. The pandemic exposed a lot of cracks as well as showing some heroic activities. Getting a doctor is tougher and tougher on people. Waiting lists for procedures like hip and knee replacements are long. ICUs seem in short supply. Everyone has a story of waiting for attention at emergency, and a bad flu season is simply adding to the strains. The Public Policy Forum has brought together a group of reform-minded healthcare experts many of them insiders, to look into what's going wrong and, more importantly, how to make it right. And two members of this advisory group, both practitioners, are our guests today on Policy Speaking. Joining us, Dr. Victoria Lee and Dr. Danielle Martin. Dr. Lee is the President and CEO of Fraser Health in British Columbia. Fraser Health is the largest health authority in the province. Before becoming CEO, she was Chief Medical Officer and Vice President for Population Health. Dr. Lee brings a national and international perspective to the issues at play. She has collaborated with national and international organizations, including the Nations Development Program and the World Bank, and has done a lot of work there in comparative health systems. Dr. Martin is chair of the Department of Family and Community Medicine at the University of Toronto, which is the largest academic department of family medicine in the world. She is an active family physician herself, whose clinical work has ranged from comprehensive family medicine in rural and remote communities to maternity care. She was vice president of medical affairs and health system solutions at Women's College Hospital in Toronto, and she's the author of a book, Better Now, Six Big Ideas to Improve Healthcare for All Canadians. Welcome, Victoria. Welcome, Danielle.
1: Thanks for Lovely. having us here.
0: Okay, so let's start with you, Danielle, alphabetically here. It sort of feels that Canadians suddenly have begun questioning a system that, as I said in the intro, has long been their pride and joy. So what's gone wrong here? And, you know, if perhaps something's gone right, but uh, I don't want to presume it's wrong, but Canadians seem to think something's gone wrong.
1: I think you're right that people are questioning, and it's not just in Canada. You know, one of the things that is important for us to to do is to take a step back and ask, are we having a Canadian problem, or do we have a global phenomenon occurring here? And we saw Macron talking about a complete overhaul of the French healthcare system. We see the nurses in the NHS going on strike in the first time in its history. There are massive issues. I've mean, speaking with my colleagues in the U.S., in American health systems. So, you know, we are in a global situation. And of course, we are experiencing a particularly Canadian version of it, which is that we have come through these last few years of the pandemic, where we threw all of our resources in the health system into trying to cope with COVID-19, with its diagnosis, its treatment, its prevention, and we now have to pick up the pieces in a moment where we have an unprecedented crisis in human resources. And so, if it feels like it's hard, it's because it is. And Canadians are right to be questioning the state of the system and also. It's not just happening here, it's happening everywhere. So I don't know whether misery loves company or not, but misery sure has got it in this moment.
0: Victoria, I want you to address the same point, but maybe also you tell us if you think this is a changed expectation by people, if it's a recognition of something that they just hadn't tuned into previously, or if things have substantively changed.
2: Yeah, I agree with uh, what Danielle mentioned. This is, you know, a health system that's reeling from all of the impacts of the pandemic and the responses where people have come together. And in the West Coast, where I'm from, we've also had a lot of weather events, so extreme weather events disasters on top of the pandemic that it's been in that emergency mode for so long. So, I don't think there's any health system in the world that's gone through what we have together and haven't seen some of the impacts that we're seeing. I do think there's also that component of expectations. I think there's a couple of components. on one side, The health system was able to rally together collectively very quickly in an agile way, bring together services, whether it was for testing vaccines. And that was much more patient family oriented. So having scheduling that's available online and being able to see what your records are. I do think there's also those expectations from what the public has seen through the pandemic, what the health system is capable of. There's expectations that's from The provider side and the system side of what we can do and change that's more difficult to manage when we've got more diversified priorities versus single priority. I also think expectations in terms of the people have been waiting for services during the pandemic and are very keen to get on top of those services, whether they were waiting for primary care, surgical diagnostic services, they want to get on top of it now. So there is that mismatch between that expectation from the public and what the health system can deliver, given the challenges that we have with the current health system, health human resource crisis as well.
0: If you would elaborate for a second on what you mean that it's more difficult to manage because we have a diversified system, Uh, you know, I would think all systems are diversified. So what are you focusing on when you say that?
2: So normally our health system has a number of priorities that we're trying to deliver. During the pandemic, it was singularly focused on delivering to responding, preventing, treating the pandemic. and, And Every focus of what we do every single day, every hour was around that. Uh, Normally, we would have diversified priorities, whether it's senior care, primary community care, whether it's acute operational efficiency, whether it's human resources. They're all tied together at the end of the day to improve our population health, improve our health system quality and safety. But it's not as focused and targeted as the whole health system, all the policymakers, practitioners working to one specific area.
0: Danielle, what would you describe as the, you know, main top line headline challenges that the system needs to confront right now?
1: People, full stop. And the most important challenge that we face is we do not have the people in the system to respond to the need. And so whether you are calling your family doctor's office and the phone is just ringing and ringing and ringing because there aren't enough medical secretaries to answer the phones and, you know, some have left and others are off sick or their kids are off sick or they're home taking care of their ill parents because we're in the middle of the uh, triple threat of viral illness on top of everything else or whether you're in the emergency department where they are regularly down 8, 10, 12, 20 nurses, you know, on any given shift or whether you're, being admitted to the hospital and you're in a gurney in a hallway because there aren't enough beds, because we haven't been able to move people out to home because we don't have enough PSWs in home care. What is a PSW? A personal support worker. So, you know, whatever the staffing, wherever you are in the system, the experience that you're having of waiting or feeling under pressure or feeling that it is, you know, that the system is overwhelmed, it is by and large not a demand-side issue. It is the supply-side issue. We do not have the team members. We've seen huge numbers of people retiring just in family medicine alone. For example, in Ontario, in the first six months of the pandemic, we saw a doubling of retirements among family physicians. And so huge numbers of people have exited the provision of healthcare. And uh, the result of that is that there are fewer people left behind to do the, you know, the same amount of work, or perhaps even more work, because we are all doing what we were doing before, plus. COVID care for the foreseeable future. And so, okay. you know, it, it is a, a people issue.
0: Let me stick with you on people for a second, then I'll come to Victoria and ask her the main priority that she sees at the moment, which may indeed be people as well. But Danielle, when you say so many people have been leaving the system, was this something that could have been predicted? To what extent is it pandemic related? Or to what extent was it, you know, moving in that direction in any case? And were we prepared?
1: Well, I think it's a multi-stream complex problem, right? So first of all, we're seeing people exiting and moving all around in every sector of the economy. My understanding is it's not so easy to hire people to work anywhere. I went to get a coffee last week and the coffee shop was closed because they couldn't find staff to staff a coffee shop. So, you know, we are we are seeing a huge turnover and churn in human resources all across every sector of the economy. We are, of course, seeing an increased number of people leaving healthcare and retiring from healthcare in the wake of the pandemic, You know whether we want to call that burnout or whether we want to call it a reprioritization of people's concerns. Of course, we're also facing massive inflation at a time when public sector wages have by and large been held steady and constant for quite some time. And so that's why we see the nurses, for example, in the UK going on strike around wage controls for the work that they do. And so like it's complicated, and was it, was it predictable? I mean, I think it's probably predictable that when people's workload increases massively and the stress increases massively in essential work in a global public health crisis, that more of them might choose to move on to some other thing. I don't know whether predictable helps us, though. I think the question is, was it preventable? And I don't know, other than through the retrospectoscope you know, how confident I feel making making proclamations about that. I do know that I think there are some things that we could be doing now to, get, to help get ourselves out of this hole. And uh, hopefully we'll have time to talk about some of that.
0: Victoria, do you want to pick a priority that you think we really need to uh, pay attention to now?
2: Yeah, I, I think that immediate priority, what's in front of our faces and every day in, you know, here and elsewhere in other industries is all around that people piece. I do think in health what is in front of us longer term is that transformation agenda. And I think the pandemic gave us an opportunity to learn about what are some of the strengths as well as some of the areas that we're challenged in our health system. And it really, really highlighted those strengths assets as well as deficits. And where we end up is we have an opportunity now to transform the trajectory of our health system. And that transformational agenda, I think, is the headline that we really need to delve into. And as Canadians, as residents of Canada, what is it that we need from our health system, because often what it happens is if we just add more people to our existing system, if we just add more beds to the existing system, if we just build more into our system, we're not going to hire or build our way out of the challenges we're currently faced with. And that's why I go to, it's the transformation and transformational change agenda that we really need to take on nationally and globally to a certain extent. And in Canada, I think we have actions that we can take that leverage our existing infrastructure and what we've learned throughout COVID time, that, that transformation agenda. I think how exhausted people are, how fatigued people are from the pandemic, it's a difficult time to move forward with that agenda. And I think that is the current context that we're in. But I think that's where it's also exciting and the opportunities lie ahead. From what we've seen, we can do this. We can actually get to a point where we frog into some of the transformation, whether it's digital, whether it's people, whether it's system change or policy changes. And I'm confident that we can do it if we put our minds, efforts and
0: leadership into it. Well, you Both have put your minds to this with uh, several other people on a panel at the Public Policy Forum, as organized. And the first part of your insights are hitting the public as we speak, and more, you know, waves of more specific areas will be explored later. So let's talk about transformation. Then you also talk about you know things that could be implemented quickly. So you know, I guess there's a little bit of a balance there. But let's go down that road, and let's start with the idea which is very central to this report of a patient-centric system. Danielle, let me go back and start with you. What does that mean? What is a patient-centric system and is ours patient-centric today?
1: I think that if you ask most Canadians who have had recent contact with the health system, they often will say, you know, the people I dealt with were great. You know, the people of Canadians are very fond of saying that the nurses really were trying very hard and working very hard or I... I really love my family doctor or my oncology team was lovely or whatever, but they will then follow it with a story of the disjointedness of their experience. And so a you know, a people-centered system is one in which you don't have to work so hard <laughs> to navigate and get what you need. So that begins, in fact, it begins and ends with access to care close to home in the community with a family doctor or a primary care team who knows you, who cares about you you know, walked with you on your journey through the system and can connect you with everything else that you need uh, along the way. It means being able to access your data and know and carry it with you, know what you're due for, what you're uh, up to date on, what your lab results are, be able to have some faith that your data is also crossing boundaries appropriately between your, your various team members in your care. So your family dog knows when you got admitted to the hospital or your hospital team can see that you recently had had, had a medication change that might've caused you to land in the emergency department, et cetera. And it ultimately means a decent experience of, of the care. And, and by decent experience, I don't mean, you know, cucumber water and foot massages. I mean, decent treatment and a feeling that you are seen as a person and that your experience uh, matters. And so that is something that we have a right to expect, that our patients have a right to expect, and that we have not done a good job of doing in the Canadian health systems thus far. That's the opportunity.
0: Victoria, why don't you take us a little further, you know, uh, from your perspective of what we need to do to be a patient, people-centered health system?
2: Yeah, I think that distinction is important to it in terms of patient- people-centered because from my perspective it needs to be people-centered because when we go to patients it's often the traditional very paternalistic model of you're sick and therefore we need to take care of you mindset that sometimes comes out and people also go beyond the healthcare system to what could we do from preventive Perspective: What could we do to keep people healthy, living longer, managing their chronic conditions in the community? And sometimes when we define people as patients, the other aspects go with it. So I really like that people-centered, uh, first of all. I also think that in terms of that connected, integrated care, what we currently experience in our health system is that it's getting more and more complex and complicated. Every specialty area whether it's in family medicine, whether it's in surgery, whether it's in subspecialties of medicine, there's so much evidence that's coming out and new ways of doing things and technology, but it's difficult to keep up. And how the health system manages is to create all these sub-sub-sub services that's supposed to help with that. But even with a PhD, sometimes it's difficult to navigate our health system the way it is. And I think for me, the way to visualize it is You know, we don't know what's behind the wall when we plug our electronics into our power outlets, but it's complicated behind that wall with all of the ways that we actually get electricity. But right now we're asking the patients and people to navigate that. What I'd love to see is that we navigate that, whether it's through family Uh, medicine and primary care teams or whether it's through a health system, because we also need to look after people that don't currently have attachment to uh, patients. So I think there's opportunities to do that through technology, uh, virtual triage, there's opportunities to connect the system through electronic medical records that are much more tight, interoperable than what we currently see, huge opportunities to empower patients and people, because right now you don't have the information data that you require to actually keep yourself healthy and uh, managing your care in the community. So there's, I think, that opportunity to be people-centred should be really driven by that, what do people need to be healthy in the community, living as long as possible, independently as possible.
0: In some ways, it feels to me like there's a bit of a contradiction in, in what you're both saying in that you want it to be an easier system to get through but you want me to have access to my records and I should be you know figuring out how to get through. So, you know, I think we've all had the experience of, if not for ourselves, being an advocate for someone else in the system. And the whole idea that you need an advocate seems to me wrong-handed, you know, to start with. I mean, that's a an illustration of a failure, it seems to me. But are you, in being more people-centric, putting more responsibility on me when I encounter the system? Danielle, you seem... Mad. <laughs>
1: but, you know, there's a great thinker on this question at the Mayo Clinic, and his name is Victor Montori, and he has written a book about this question and what he calls the work of care and the ways in which as healthcare becomes more complex, we download the work of care onto the person who is sick and actually probably in the least good position to be doing the work. And so he talks about re-uploading that care into the system. The way that I think about it is, I suppose you're right at some level, it could be seen as a contradiction. We want people to feel like they are a member of their team, like they understand what is going on with them. You know, I would ideally like for my patients to be able to tell whoever they encounter, if they so choose what their diagnoses are and what medications they take and when their next appointment is, like people should be able to be given the information to navigate themselves in that way and be as engaged as they want to be in their care. But that doesn't mean that they should be running around doing the problem solving for themselves. And so, you know, we used to say in some parts of the health and social services sector, oh, there should be no wrong door, you know, any door you knock on, should get you access to the service you need. Well, actually, no, That, in my view, that just leads to a proliferation of doors, which is super confusing for people. There should be one door. It should be really clearly marked where you go when you are feeling unwell, when you have a question about your health. And then through that door should be a person who cares about you, who can be your advocate, because everybody needs an advocate, actually, in a complex system. But you shouldn't be relying on your family members or on yourself to do that. That advocate should be your primary care provider or team. And that is where the navigation then happens and occurs. And if you're the kind of person who really gets a charge out of keeping track of your blood pressure on an app and you know messaging your endocrinologist twice a week, go for it. And if you're not that kind of person and that just feels like work to you, you shouldn't have to in order to be able to get the care that you need for your hypertension or diabetes.
0: Victoria, you spent part of your career in population health. You've said in the deliberations of of this group that, you know, more health has to be upstream. And why don't you describe that as well? Because I think you're trying to get us in a situation where fewer people have to cross the Rubicon into the system in some ways, right?
2: Yeah. And I think what I'm really talking about is converting what's really the focus of our current system, which is sickness-based, to wellness-based system. And how do we value that as well as invest in that, as well as empower people to join that? And I like the way Danielle had framed being member of the care team as individuals that we can be member of the care team, whether it's in the upstream journey of prevention to downstream journey of chronic disease management to, you know, rehab from surgery to palliative care choices. But I also think that we can get more people to be part of that care team, whether it's municipalities, whether it's schools, whether it's businesses. So when we actually partner, given how much impact that we have, we can really move some of the work upstream, and it also deals with some of the people problems that we've talked about. So I was talking to one of the mayors the other day talking about how having more services for seniors in the community, whether it's aqua fit, whether it's seniors connections, social connections, whether it's meals on wheels, whether all of those actually help to keep people healthy in the community. So that's just one of the examples of the upstream measures that we can take so that we don't have as much downstream impacting, making our health system more sustainable. So if you go really upstream, it goes into social determinants of health, whether it's healthy policies, our climate environment, and we've seen some of the impacts of that as well as housing, all of those things. And I think as we look at our health system in a way that's sustainable, not just from financial perspective, but also from population perspective, climate perspective, it really makes sense for us to look at not only the bigger partners and players in that care team, but how much can we push to upstream investments that's going to have much bigger downstream impacts? And there's small examples that's individual actions from vaccination to bigger examples such as housing and climate policies that actually impact our individual and population health more. And right now, again, similar to health system navigation, I find that sometimes it's siloed instead of connected, when it's really what's going to keep somebody healthier and what's going to actually cost less in our health system is actually also better for the environment. So, for instance, the heavier climate impact questions are on the acute health system, and that's the most expensive system. And it's also least desirable in terms of having people looked after in the hospital setting, because that means they just require that more acuity of care. We'd rather have have them healthy in the community as long as possible. So all of those things are connected. And I think that's another huge opportunity that we have in our health system in Canada, given the infrastructure that we have.
1: Yeah, if I can just jump in on that, Victoria, because I agree with you that I think the you know there's a reason why the World Health Organization has moved from talking about patient-centered to person-centered to people-centered care. And that is because we recognize that health is not something that happens to atomic individuals. It is a, a good that is produced in communities. So when we talk about person-centered that's you know all very well and fine for the one individual marching their way through the healthcare system you know with a particular illness but you know real serious health interventions and healthcare system reform happens in communities it happens in neighborhoods it happens in towns and cities where where people are engaging in the production of health together and so thinking about this at the level of populations which is where data can be super useful is is a critically important part of the conversation and actually the pandemic has given us a gift in that respect. I think that Canadians do understand now that health is not something that just happens to individuals or illness, that, you know, the, the behaviors that I do have an impact on your health, the decisions that we make collectively have an, an, an impact on all of our health, that we can't kind of only worry about our own health without thinking about the health of our neighbors, etc. Like those are conversations that we didn't I would not have anticipated we would have as at as high a level as we have seen uh, over the course of the pandemic. Now, what are we going to do with them now that we're in this new pandemic phase and trying to pick up the pieces of the rest of the healthcare system? That, I think, is the is the interesting part of the conversation.
0: I thought part of the gift was going to be and perhaps another gift is maybe people are also seeing the value of data.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I think uh, data is the new currency of our society, actually data and attention and given our public health system, we're very rich in data. And before the pandemic, we really underutilized our data and, you know, say, just putting it into savings account and not doing much with it, but data should be for action. And we've seen some of those data driven actions during the pandemic and uh, here, the opportunity it, from my perspective and from the panel conversations is really empowering individuals with data, empowering systems with data, but ensuring that the data is connected. So there's traditional health data that can be connected, but there's also tr- Data that we can connect beyond the health system. So what would it look like if we connect your data that you have on your Apple Watch, for instance, with the health system data that we have on your individual information and then use AI and machine learning to predict your journey and be able to make sure that instead of you having say, another disaster with your diabetes management, we can actually predict that's happening about two, three weeks before and get additional support that you need. So there's impact at the individual care level, but there's also huge impacts in system level. Like, uh, for instance, we can look at digital twinning of the health system to look at population level connected data and beyond the health system to weather patterns with insurance data, with other information that actually connects to not only look at potential solutions in the health system, but policy changes and the impacts that we can have before making those changes. I also think it makes changes much more rational by being able to be data-driven instead of currently. It's predicted often. And we make changes, but it's very difficult to go back once we make, we make some of the changes or additions to the health system. So I believe that there's another huge opportunity from Canada and, in, and how we currently carry out health services and ensuring that we're really empowering it by data.
0: When someone invokes rational decision making, it brings me immediately to the role of government uh, in, in all of this. And there is a discussion going on. Might sound like a bun fight to a lot of people that's uh, happening between, particularly, the provincial level of government, the premiers, and, and the federal government. Um, a lot of discussion about money. So, to what extent are we talking about a money problem, Danielle?
1: You know, I used to think that and I used to say pretty often that I didn't think we needed much more money in the system. I agree with Victoria's earlier characterization that I think if we take more money and put it into the existing system, we will get more of the same result. But I am also of the view that we are in a different situation now in Canada's health systems than we were in a decade ago. Uh, The pandemic really has taken a toll, a very serious toll on our health systems and our, on our health workforce. And we've got a bunch of things that we need to get done that are going to be hard to do in the absence of any investment at all. So I am of the view, to quote our country's good friend, Roy Romano, that we need to use any new money to buy change. And you know, it was true when he said it, still true now. And the fact that it's taken us a couple decades to learn that lesson doesn't make it any less of an important one. So I, I do think that there is an investment needed, a quite considerable one. I think that the federal government has to bring serious money to the table in the conversation with the provinces and territories. And I think that that money needs to be used to advance some of the key reforms that we know are required because otherwise it will just go into, otherwise the risk is that in spite of the best efforts of provincial and territorial leaders, which I believe they do put in, those dollars get sucked into A whole bunch of things that you and I won't feel, you know, at the front line as as users of the system and as clinicians in the system, we won't feel any difference at all. So it's got to be, yes, we need money and it's got to be used to buy change.
0: Okay, and maybe people go back and read the Romano Report from the late 1990s. Uh, Victoria, when we talk about money, I sort of think of a lot of reports that show that Canada is a fairly high spender relative to uh, high-income countries, Not as much as the United States, of course, but relative to many countries. Uh, But we don't seem to get the outcomes for it. So what's the problem? And is money the answer?
2: Yeah, I think the U.S. is definitely an outlier when you look at the Commonwealth report, WHO reports, OECD reports, whatever reports that you look at. The U.S. is definitely an outlier when you look at per capita spending and how much they spend. Uh, The spending in Canada, when you combine all of the individual pieces of it, uh, because I think sometimes people confuse our public health system as completely publicly administered. But when you look at medications, for instance, dental, physio, all of those combined, Canada actually spends quite a bit in comparison to our neighbouring high-income countries. So are we not getting value? Because if you look at the recent... The most recent Commonwealth report, we're at the lower end of rankings at 10 out of 11 countries that were compared in terms of quality and safety and equity measures. And where I go to is similar to what Danielle said, because I don't think that we need to put more money into our current system. It's not really going to help. But we do need infusion of money for innovation and transformation agenda, because as we get into that change mode, we do need some investments to actually make that happen and execute and execution dollars and reframing how we actually buy services would be worthwhile to consider as well. And, and I'm not talking about the traditional clinical services and those areas. What I'm talking about is currently we often approach the problem with the solution in mind and And procure for widgets in mind. But I think where we have more broader opportunity is buying outcomes. So, you know, instead of partnering to buy a widget, we would partner with industry, partner with internal uh, programs to actually buy buy outcomes. So if it's, you know, ensuring, you know, 95% occupancy within our health system, what are digital uh, transformation opportunities that we can leverage to get to that outcome instead of just buying a widget for that outcome. So the approach could be different, but I do think overall, I don't think we need more money in the system over time. I think that it's infusion of money currently for transformation innovation. And I think we need to use it differently in our approach, as well as how we work through the infrastructure procurement to get those outcomes.
0: Let me just try a final question. Maybe we'll we'll all try to be brief on this, although it's it's a big question. In your report, you know, with your colleague and with the public policy forum, you basically try. It seems to shift power in many ways to the patient person. To go back to that theme, with a kind of service guarantee. A Victoria and then Daniel, just talk about that for one moment and. How important that is to have a transformation?
2: I think that's pivotal. That's central to our transformation our agenda. How uh, to s- transform our system really is around people and how people, what kind of services they need. So is it actually defined as per current interpretation of Canada Health Act? Or is it different than what's currently being interpreted so from even at from legislative level to how services are organized whether we're looking at primary care teams whether we're looking at health system navigation empowered by digital technologies whether we're looking at what kind of data patients families and uh, people really require everything really should start from what do people require what do the residents of Canada require and what makes sense in terms of our transformation journey from where we're at to where the future can be. And I think in the past, a lot of the change has been centered around policies and providers and not necessarily people at the very center of it. And I think there's an opportunity to really change how our system services Function with people at the
0: center. Almost a right, Danielle. Is that right?
1: I mean, I would settle for some clarity on what to expect because I think quickly when we get to rights, I mean, if really we, if we want to get into rights, then we should be talking not about a right to healthcare, but a right to health. And as, soon as you start start talking about a right to health, then you're not talking about healthcare anymore. You're talking about income, and you're talking about education and social services and all kinds of other things. So you know, but I do think that the the notion that people should have clarity on what they can expect the system to deliver to them, they should know where to go to get what they need, and they should have, you know, uh, clear answers to the to their questions about how to how to get through an episode of of care in the health system it seems to me to be pretty basic and fundamental. And yes, I do think it puts the power back in the hands of the users of the system, which is where it belongs. And I think that if we talk about it in terms of a service guarantee or whatnot, the risk is that we sometimes can spiral into sort of facile conversations about, well, if you don't get your knee replaced in 82 days instead of 89 days, then what's your recourse? And do you get to sue the government or whatever? Like, I don't think that that's the point. I think the point is people should be able to know what to expect when they interact with the system. Um, they should have good experiences of it, and there should be clear journeys that they undertake when they when they come into contact with the system. And that is uh, whether we call that a service guarantee, whether we call it an expectation. I think is is less important.
0: Last word to Victoria.
2: I wanted to give an example from Alaska. They call their patients customer owners. In Canada, as taxpayers, people are the owners of the system, and exactly as it's been said, people need to define what the expectations are, what the deliverables are, and what we need to be accountable for, and they need to be at the very center of the health
0: system that's going to be sustainable. And that changes the balance of power within the system, of course. Listen, I want to thank you both Danielle Martin, Victoria Lee, your, I want to thank you for your participation in the panel and uh, the continued participation as it digs a bit deeper into some of the issues uh, that you raise. But mostly, you know, you're people in the system. You've worked very hard yourselves over the last number of years. I think Canadians do appreciate, despite the difficulties and uh, that there have been, the extraordinary hard work that's gone into it. But somehow or another, you've managed not to be swallowed up by the status quo. You're both reform-minded and you will be the fear carriers of change. And, and I think Canadians are expecting change and I think they want to know what that looks like. And, you know, thank you for helping paint that picture.
2: Thank you. And thanks to the Public thank Policy Forum. Yes. Thank you for having us.
0: And at this point in the podcast, we like to do our member shout out and this week. We want to say how PPF proud we are of the Ivy Foundation for distributing its $100 million endowment over the next five years to organizations supporting Canada's transition to a low carbon economy. So the Ivy Foundation is going to to spend out, wind down, and it announced that decision to mark its 75th anniversary a month or so ago. We're proud of our member Ivy Foundation for supporting initiatives tackling climate change, such as PPF's own Energy Future Forum, and for recognizing the important role philanthropy can play when it comes to Canada's climate and energy transition. The Ivy Foundation, I would say, has been an institution builder. It's a leader in setting up a number of organizations that will be at work and doing good work long after that money is spent out so i'm ready to finish this podcast and i want to ask you to share the episode with uh, your network feel free to leave us a review on the podcast platform of your choice Have a look at the report on healthcare that Danielle and Victoria have been working on and figure out a way to engage in that conversation for such an important part of our life and the life of the country. I want to thank my colleagues at the Public Policy Forum who make this podcast happen. I'm Edward Greenspan, and this has been Policy Speaking.